I think it's an interesting age, like to be a man in your mid to late thirties, because like you're you're kind of like a lot a lot of your, you know, the twenties is kind of like it's all potential almost, right? Mm-hmm. You're like in the world, like your entire life is ahead of you. You don't have, you know, a lot of people don't have kids yet, um, or you know, maybe they're just now thinking about getting married in their mid to late twenties and that kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know. Um, you know, but then, you know, then you get married, maybe you have a kid or two and, you know, mid to late thirties, all of a sudden your life doesn't, it, it doesn't give you that feeling that, oh, I've got plenty of time. Right. I'm like, yeah. oh, like I can do anything now. Like my, your life is kind of more on a track. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you start asking other questions. Well, what is actually meaningful about like, what do I, what do I want to spend my time and my energy doing? Right. Because, you know, now you're having, now you have a, maybe you have a, a wife and maybe have kids. And so you have less time and less energy to spend doing mm-hmm. some of the things. And so you start to really ask, I think a lot of questions about what is actually important. What do I care about? Um, yeah. what, what were all the things that I really wanted to do, or I, I thought were so important 10 years ago, are they really that important? Um, like, do I need mm-hmm. some of these things? Um, do I need like the super high powered career? Do I, you know, those kind mm-hmm. of things, like what, what really means something? Um, to you. Um, what kind of church do you want to be a part of if you're asking those kind of questions? Yeah. It's and, such a different, we should, we could talk about everything. I'm just yeah. looking behind you. I see Grudem Systematic. Yeah. <laughs> you probably see, so this Calvin's Institute, yeah. uh, the commentaries and the institutes. I've got Aquinas, of course, over here. Uh-huh. Um, this is Bob Inc. Um, obviously Kant, Aristotle, Nietzsche. So like Kierkegaard's up here. Um, yeah. Lewis scattered throughout my. What's I that? think we come from similar theological worlds, somewhat, and you're just yeah, way more into philosophy hear, than anyone that yeah, I ever came across in those worlds. I I, I I was interested to hear what your because I know that you you're you're. Can we start recording? I I am recording. Yeah. Oh so dang. We can, we, yeah, we can we can edit however okay. we want to do it. <laughs> yeah, I started right. just because. Um, okay. Um, so I, I did want to, so you're in the process kind of, of converting to orthodoxy, I guess, what does that look like? Cause you, is, yeah. orthodoxy and Catholicism is not like joining a Baptist church, right? It's not like, no. oh, I'm, I'm orthodox now, right? You're in the process of becoming orthodox. Is that the right way of thinking about it? Yeah. So there's an, there, yeah. So there's an official process. I was actually just talking to my wife about this last night. Um, cause I agree with you. It, it's very different. Uh, it, it's. It's almost more like, I don't know, I used to right away when I first started joining the Orthodox community, uh, they use the language of converting, mm-hmm. which to me, like my Protestant elephant, uh, well, I would say probably my Protestant writer uh, was, I'm just like, Mm-mm. yeah, I don't like that word, uh, but, but I get it more now. And I think it's just because it really is more akin to like, it's more akin to a marriage and I was illustrating it. So I'll tell you the process, but I was illustrating mm-hmm. it this way is that one of the things that really bothered me about, cause we've, we've traveled a lot and we've, uh, which maybe we were recording when I was giving the specifics, we can edit that out. But um, the, uh, so we've been a part of a lot of different churches um, and not because we've left churches and we've every place we've ever gone We've only gone to one church, except for this last trip to Minneapolis. Um, and, and something that always, and so it never really came up, but, but in our last 
so my last foray into the evangelical Protestant world before I started becoming like working toward orthodoxy was in Minneapolis here. And we were part of this small group and in small groups, house churches, gospel communities, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. um, they, you always use the language of family, you know, we're a family. Right. Um, but then the problem, so like you are a family, but the thing is, is like, until you're not, right. Like until you leave the church and then you're no longer family, you might keep in touch with a few people. There's some friends you had along the way, but essentially like it's, you leave, you leave the church and like, that's just the end. And I mean, right. part of that's practical, part of it's understandable, but like the difference, I would say orthodoxy is a lot more like Judaism or something. Like mm -hmm. you're not, you're always a Jew. Like right. you can't, even if you don't practice, even if you, we got into this a little bit on the discord maybe some people will disagree because there's a new uh jewish guy on there like our own okay. our own personal jew on the discord <laughs> yeah it's great uh and uh and he, and i was saying like in my mind at least the way that i conceive of it you can be jewish and christian um like you know because mm -hmm. jew is big is more of like a cultural national identity thing right. it's not necessarily like what i profess what i self-identify as based on right. my profession when you see i mean you yeah you can be a jew and christian i mean obviously you can be jew and atheist or agnostic right. which is like a huge percentage but they don't right. consider you less jewish by virtue right. of that yeah right and orthodoxy is a lot more like that it's a it is just such a and i was trying to explain it because right now we're going through lent so so the process to, to your initial question is like you the, the official terms are is you can be an inquirer, which is just someone who's coming to liturgies, per, like in, involved in the community around, interested. Mm -hmm. um, but almost like within Judaism, that would be considered like, I don't know, an interested Gentile or something mm -hmm. that's just in the outer okay. perimeter. I mean, it's different because it's not like so partitioned off. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's an official thing, which actually uh, my kids and I did just this last Sunday uh, on Orthodoxy Sunday, but you become a catechumen, part of the catechumen, which is, which can be in, there is no time definitive part of it, but it's an, it's like at a, it's the official entry into the process. Like you're no longer an inquirer. You are, you have the vision of becoming Orthodox and it's, and that process can last a long time. There are some people who become catechumens who just for whatever reason, take years or decades or maybe even never take mm -hmm. that next step but it's more like you you go up it's part of a it's not probably technically a sacrament but you go up um and the priest you know says a says words over you and things you know crosses your heads and does all this sort of stuff um and so that's part of the official process and then my kids so like this the plan was this lent uh well i'll go into all the deep my, my kids are going to be baptized i'm not going to be baptized right away they will be baptized, which is traditionally done on Holy Saturday, mm -hmm. converts, because converts. kids are baptized. Yeah. Right. Um, and um, which is, you know, the day before Pascha, which is the Orthodox Easter. And uh, then you're baptized, you take First Communion. It's a little different because, like, my second grader is doing First Confession, too. So then you, you enter into all these sacraments, and, um, and then you're Orthodox. Okay. And that's gotcha. kind of the process once you actually, but the official process is like inquire catechumens and official, like you're kind of in the, 
you're in the system. The mm-hmm. priests are praying for you all the time. You're part of the. Okay. You're part of the the community officially. And is it is it largely the priests who decide the progression and the speed of the progression and that kind of stuff? Like how? Um, I'm I'm assuming that like well it's probably a little bit mutual I would imagine yeah. but but like I would I would assume the priests would also be like yeah you're not ready sometimes yeah I think so it's it's very it's very mutual um, my experience with it has been um, like for example my priest um, you know he's perfectly comfortable and has been perfectly comfortable with me becoming Orthodox for a long time part of it is um, Part of it is an individual analysis. Like, I don't know. It's interesting talking to at least my priest, and part of this is going to be temperament, but he's almost, he's a lot more like a therapist or a psychoanalysis. Like when you go in to talk Mm. to him, he just sits there and listens. Like he's not, he'll talk and he'll say things every once in a while, but he's very, um, there isn't, there isn't a lot of compulsion or telling you what to do. Like there's, Mm -hmm there's an official way to be. So like, if you're going to join orthodoxy, it's not flippant and like up to you and you can do whatever you want. Like it's very set, right. but how you, how fast you go about that is, is very different. Like, I don't know if you remember from Nathan Jacobs talking about this, but his wife wasn't ready to convert for a long time. And, and he was, and his priest basically said, no, you're not going to convert until she does. And so he waited like seven years for his Mm -hmm. wife to be ready before he converted. There's no, there's, I almost think of it this way with an orthodoxy. It's, and I don't understand quite because I'm not as familiar with Catholicism, but like within Catholicism, it seems like there's, there are official like dogmas, doctrines, um, like all that stuff is on record in a more official way. Within orthodoxy, it's more, it's more about precedent, but it's also about like, there's a broad tradition and precedent, but it, there's also local, mm. the local and priest thing, I feel like has a little bit more autonomy gotcha. within that, but yet it's more of a, it's a little bit more nebulous is at least my impression of how that works. And I think practically it works the same way within Catholicism too. Yeah. I, I, I would, I would imagine like your local parish would like, doesn't necessarily line up exactly with what the Roman right. Catholic church. Although is. it's probably supposed to, whereas, right. whereas yeah. within Orthodoxy, it's more it's like, not even, it's not, not even a goal really. Um, I think they would say like, it needs to line up uh, and this is where you get into fuzzy Christianese word. It needs to line up spiritually. It needs to be mm-hmm. of the same spirit. Right. But, but what that means in the particular practice yeah. can vary. Yeah. So do you not, until you convert, do you not take communion? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So how long has it been since you've taken communion? Man. Well, I wouldn't even know officially because, well, and then that's the thing that's tough because our last church that we were at before this, like, I don't even know if they had a set thing. They probably did. I don't know if it was like once a month or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel like and, that's the, it's either, I feel like the common thing in Protestant is either once a week, like every Sunday or just once a month. Seems like to within be the like, evangelical kind of fold. Yeah. 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 Um, I, so it's probably, so I've been an inquirer for over two, well, a little over two years. 
So, um, so give or take okay. that long, gotcha. but it's, but it's strange, like, right. Because communion within orthodoxy is, or within Catholicism or even within Lutheranism and probably Anglicanism is different. It's not mere remembrance. Right. Yep. You know? And so like the, the residual Protestant elephant writer is kind of just like, well, it didn't really, like, it didn't really matter then. It's like, it doesn't matter. So now the way that I think about that, just to tell like, even with baptism, it's because a lot of the early church fathers, I guess, like forewent who were converts forewent baptism till really late in their life. Yeah. Um, there was, um, yeah, there was, um, the Donatist, um, sex that, um, that Augustine kind of basically killed, um, whenever he wrote about it, but yeah, the Donatist. So what the Donatist thought was that, um, if, if you got baptized and then, um, and then say you went on to live a life of sin or something like that, like you deconverted maybe, or you just generally were not walking with the church in some way. Right. Yeah. Their thought was, okay, then you got baptized, which is necessary for salvation, but then you walked away you can't be yeah. rebaptized at that point. And so basically you're damned to hell. And so like a lot of them, the Donatists were teaching people and a lot of the Donatists, like the, the, the priests and, and the teachers were waiting literally until their deathbed to get, um, yeah. to get baptized. Um, Augustine wrote uh, a book called Against the Donatists um, that kind of um, basically said that that's not, that's not right. Um, and, said that basically he, he considered it a heresy and the, the Catholic church sided with him. Um, and so that kind of more or less killed that early Donatist. But that was, from my understanding, that was mainly like a North Africa thing. Um, and, and other parts of Christendom didn't necessarily have that widespread of the teaching. The Donatists were mainly North Africa, um, I think, but um, which would make sense why Augustine was so concerned about it because that's what yeah. he was. Well, yeah. I feel like some of the, like, I, I can't remember the specifics of what I was told or what I heard and how accurate that even was. Um, but I feel like there's some Eastern fathers who did that. And it was almost mm -hmm. more out of a, I don't know, along the lines of like a piety thing, because they took that really seriously because that's, mm -hmm. again, that's a difference within Orthodoxy and Catholicism is you don't like within, I'm used to Calvinism, you know, like Baptist reformed, like re we always said, reformed in the doctrines of grace right soteriologically yeah. reformed right right okay um but they but they would say things like well if you fall away after your profession after your baptism and all that that shows you weren't elect right mm -hmm. and so it's all it's all abstract and esoteric it's all this like ethereal spiritual thing but right but orthodox and reformed don't have that they're just like no you were baptized right you like this thing happened to you Right. It's not like an abstracted idea thing. Like it mm -hmm. happened. And so it's a sacrament. And so they almost, so then that's probably where they would go. And I don't know what the donors say about this, but this is, this is a shout out to my buddy AO. We used to have debates about this kind of stuff all the time, but he would, 
he all he doesn't believe in the perseverance of the saints so like he thinks you can lose your salvation and i don't know interesting yeah i don't well, know the donatists, the donatists thought that too and so that's, right. that's basically why they didn't want to get baptized because right. they were like well once you go down that route and then if you walk away you are damned forever <laughs> so they're like yeah. nope i want no part of that so which is and, and in defense of my buddy ao like i mean this is back he was debating all these things with me when i was in like you know calvinist phase and he was saying like there are these texts like hebrews he's like we care about the bible right these things matter we care about exegesis what does this say like once you've tasted the heavenly gift and you've partaken of the divine nature mm -hmm. if you then turn away there's no longer remains a sacrifice right. for you and he's yeah. just like people don't take that seriously they systematically theologize that away yeah and i don't well, disagree I, with them i don't i don't disagree i think that it does require more it does require a little bit more um like if we're gonna ex you can't exegete the bible you interpret scripture with scripture right so right. you can't just take it in in isolation so that right. that that verse is saying something that i think that a lot of reform like kind of like the calvinist types would find very difficult to to talk around right, right? in the same way though you could say well you know Paul said to, I think it was the Philippians, you know, he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion. It also says, you know, right. you know, in the end times, people will come to deceive even the elect if that were possible. And so like that, if that were possible part is a right. weird thing to put in there if it is obviously possible for this to happen. Right. Right. And so, so this is where like, I think you have to hold those two things in tension. Um, and I don't think that either side is going to have a super easy time bottling that up and making sense of it in the same way that one of the things, and this is one of the things I wanted to get on into with it, um, about the whole like propositional knowledge and, and, you know, is the book of James is very challenging to the reformed types. Um, and it's one of the reasons that actually Luther did not think it should be in the canon um, <laughs> was because hey, he literally wrote, he's like, I don't think James yeah. is legit. Um, and so, because it's that whole faith and works thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so how do you, and so this is where like you, you talk about, you know, kind of acting out and it seems like a very orthodox. So I wanted to get a little bit more of your take on like, what is the relationship between like faith or propositional knowledge and action and salvation? Like, how does that work mm -hmm. itself out in your mind? Um, yeah. because obviously, obviously you're not saying propositional knowledge doesn't matter, right? right. What we say, you're not saying that. Um, and you're not saying that we earn our salvation either, but they like, they have to go together um, yeah. in some way. And so like, how does that, how do you like, how do you think about this? Right. I, um, so I love that, uh, like what Rod Dreher said in his, in that tweet thread, uh, but he just barely touched on it. You know, mm -hmm. I can't remember even the specifics of what he said. He said something like, it's not as much of a focus on, like what you propositionally think he said although that's there um and i kind of got in that in my uh that conversation with jeff and sam and i that i with sam being able to say the nicene creed and do these things and i just said i don't think the orthodox just don't put as great emphasis on and at least in my understanding again like with all this stuff like i'm just i'm speaking from what i know like i'm not sure. speaking as like the official teacher right. of orthodox yeah. theology sure um they just don't put as much a great emphasis on like how what you what you consciously think and are able to articulate You're, it's just deeper than that so that would probably be the way that i understand proposition in relation to faith um i've i've been thinking and saying for a while that i almost think of um 
propositional knowledge, like in the Verbakian sense, because he says the four kinds of knowledge are propositional, perspectival, participatory, and procedural, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would almost put propositional knowledge in another category, and I would put some caveats around it in that I see it, I see propositional knowledge as, I think probably the easiest way to say it is propositional is potential. Hmm. It, but it's not real. It's not real until it's embodied. It's, gotcha. it's theoretical. Right. And so like almost in the sense of um, what uh, JP and uh, Jonathan Peugeot were talking about, one of the best ways I like to illustrate is when they were talking about, and I call this Eucharistic knowledge, is that when you're, when you're eating an apple, right, it doesn't do you any good if you bite it up and put it in your mouth and chew it up and spit it out. It gives you no mm -hmm. nourishment. It doesn't matter if you swallow it down to your body, but then you regurgitate it. It's no good. Right. It mm -hmm. has to actually become part of you in a sacramental way where it's you do violence to the apple, but then at some point you have to give up yourself. Part of you has to die and give up indigestion to make this, to incorporate this apple, to actually integrate it and for it to become part of your body. Propositional mm -hmm. knowledge is just like that. And I think that's gotcha. what the book of James is about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the easiest way to illustrate what I think is wrong with what I call the egoic intellect or a lot of Western Christianity is it is completely messed up and misunderstood that aspect of propositional knowledge. Right. Yeah. Which is why they fight over ideas all the time. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, and I, I think it's important, you know, cause yeah, the, the kind of the reformed, you know, uh, you know, Presbyterian in me, be like, no, these, these are really important, right? The systematic. And I agree with know, that. And, and I know you do. And so that's where I want to like, be very careful. Cause I think, you know, we kind of like a lot of people will kind of be reactionary and say, you know, kind of like, no, the, these are really important. Heresies are real right. and all this. And, like, yeah. stuff. and you're not saying that you're saying, yeah, but it's not in, and like James is saying, you know, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by what I do. Right. Yep. And so like, you know, you and this goes back to, you know, Peterson talks about this a lot. Like, you know, you say you believe this, but you do something else. Right. Um, That's why and, I, Peterson is so important. That. Right. Yeah. That, yes, act I as agree. If. I agree. Yeah. Act as if because it, you're actually showing what you really believe um, right. by doing it. It's like if I'm, you know, say, you know, in, in like Chicago, you have that, you know, kind of glass floor thing that you can walk out on. Mm, yeah. You can like stand over like your, you know, however many thousands of or, or thousand feet down or whatever it is. Um, you know, you can say, I believe that that's safe to do. Right. But if you're not willing to actually walk out there, do you really believe that it's safe to right. do? Or, you know, you're, you're affirming it with your mouth, but you're not actually acting it out. Right. Um, and so in the same way that you can say, listen, I think that cheating on my wife is a sin, but if I'm going out and doing it all the time, do I really feel like that? Or, you know, right. do I really believe that? Or am I just affirming something because that's right. what I'm supposed to do and that kind of stuff. Whereas someone mm -hmm. else who might not be nearly as judgmental about like going around saying you shouldn't, you know, sleep around on your wife. If that person's actually faithful to their wife, who believes what really? Um, and you know, obviously it's best if you can act out and describe what it is that you believe, like that's right. the ideal state. But given that we don't really know what we, I don't think we know ourselves nearly as much as we think we do, right? And that's, that's where the, the elephant and the writer makes a lot of sense to me. Because I think that like, yep. 
yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So that's where I think, you know, I think it's maybe like a difference of emphasis that, you know, what you're saying, it seems to me is like proposition knowledge is all great, but it's what you do that actually tells me what you believe. And so, you know, you can have like the right words, you can have the right statements, you can have the right rules and everything else. But if you don't act it out and you don't, if it doesn't become part of like you're participating in that, those truths, then you're not actually participating in truth at all. Right. Um, and this is why just... I see, um, this is why I see the, all of this stuff is connected to me. So like what Tom Holland is saying and realizing that Paul has been just really into recently, it, you know, or that Rene Girard says is that we really, you can only create, you can only critique Christianity from within Christianity. You're using Christian values to critique Christianity. Mm. Yep. And like, so what we see in the West currently in the secular air quote, secular West is this extreme identitarianism, which we see in our politics. We see particularly around LGBTQ issues of like, well, you don't, you don't love me if you're non-affirming. Right. And this is what love is, but like, but what they have done, what they have done is they've just taken their religious heritage, right. which is propositional identitarianism and applied it to their LGBTQ thing and said, this is what love is, is to affirm me in my self identity. Right. And like, and then because of Christian tr political tribalism and the culture war that came out of the eighties, we just keep fighting about it. And we're like, no, that's dumb. That's dumb. And I'm like, that's, that's the heritage you gave them. They are acting exactly how you act. And, and this is why, to me, like the answer within the Western church is to somehow, and I don't, I don't know how this is going to happen, there needs to be a repentance and a, and a going back of, 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 of caging everything around this ideological and identitarian and tribalism and that's what I mean when I'm trying to talk about confessionalism. Like I have nothing, I have no problems with confessions. Great. Confess all the things you want to list them out. But I know how, I know what that system, I know how that system acts as if in the world and I know what it does. Mm -hmm. And it excludes people based on conscious articulation of propositions, which does, which is a shorthand. It's a tool but it doesn't work in real life. And it leads to, this is why the Rhett and Link stuff is all connected to me. It leads to a situation of Rhett and Links. It leads to people who leave the church over LGBTQ issues. And like some of these things are hard. Like when it comes down to what does it mean to love practically in a church? And let's just use the LGBTQ issue as a practical example, because it's, uh, a big deal right now and like mm -hmm. within the Methodist church and and just broadly what does it mean to love someone um, who is LGBTQ who self-identifies who is same-sex attracted or feels like they were born in the wrong body um, or whatever what does it mean to love them well the 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 broad brush spectrum of like the affirming crowd would say like, unless you affirm them in that and say like, it's, it's fine. It's good. It's true and beautiful. And love is love. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, then you're not loving. Right. And the other side would say like, unless you deny that, that's not loving because like, 
I mean, and people will use whatever things that somebody walking toward a cliff, it's not loving to let them walk off a cliff. Right. Right. Yeah. Sure. I get it. Yeah. Um, so what I mean, does it mean to love, right. to love people in that situation and how do you do church between yeah. those two groups? Yeah. No, the, um, you know, we're going through the book of John, um, right now in, um, at my church. And so a couple of weeks ago, my pastor was talking about, um, what he says, like w- people typically identify when he's like, we don't use this word necessarily, these words necessarily, but they typically identify in one of two camps. There's the truth camp or the grace camp. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the truth camp, and truth. yeah. And so like the truth camp wants to just like tell people the right answer. This is wrong. You shouldn't do this. And you just want to come down. And that's the, you shouldn't like homosexuality is a sin. And you just right. want to come down and like, I'm going to tell you the truth. Right. And then you have the grace crowd. Um, and what they want to do is just affirm, right. And just like, basically like have unlimited grace and never really talk about the hard things and the sin and all this kind of stuff. It's more just like, or they I would just, just say you. it's not sin. It's not sin. Yes, exactly. And so like, he's like, he's like, okay, here's the problem. Like, if you think you're a truth person and that's what you do, you're not actually being a truth person. If you think you're a grace person and that's what you do, that's not what biblical grace actually is. He's like, truth, real truth always includes grace. So if you're not including that and you're just going around beating people over the head with rules and that kind of stuff, what you're telling them is not actually truth. You're telling them maybe at best part of a truth, but not the truth, right? Because the truth is the gospel. That's the good news. And so like, if you don't have the grace alongside what it is that you're saying, Mm then it's not truth that you're telling them. It, it's, it's pharisaical is what you're doing. Mm. Um, and the grace side, he's like, what you're doing is not giving them grace. What you're doing is being an enabler. Um, and like, cause grace in the Bible, grace always transforms, right? And so grace, there's always like kind of a vector of I'm like grace when applied is transforming you to something else. And so if you just ignore the to something else, you're not giving them grace you're giving them essentially license to do whatever. Right. Um, and so that was kind of, he's like, and he's basically he just ended up, he's like, I can't tell you in any particular situation how to really apply grace to someone and whatever. However, <laughs> if you're a truth person and you're not giving grace, you're not giving them truth. And if you think you're a grace mm. person and you're not calling them to transform to something, then you're not yeah. giving them grace. Um, and right. that was the way he was like, that's a, that's an interesting way I thought to, to talk about this. Cause it's similar to what you're describing. Right. Right. Um, so then a couple, I had a couple thoughts that I'd like your take on, and I think, I think this is a, applies. So, um, I, so there's, there's a couple aspects of it. When you were saying that I would say the way grace and truth, you just laid out grace and truth. And I, I don't want to go that for really far down this rabbit hole trail, but I feel like it's the exact same with judgment and mercy. Mm. They're the same thing. And this is why I love yeah. George McDonald. And he says, all the attributes of God are infinite. And so like, there isn't, they're all the same and they're all infinite. And so anytime you want to get those out of balance, you're no longer dealing with God. You're dealing with things that you want to emphasize for your purposes. Right. Um, And uh, so that's one thing. And then the other aspect is like truth. The thing I've been thinking about truth and talking with some people about is that there's this brilliant, um, video that I haven't even finished yet by this guy named DC Schindler, who is connected to, and I don't know how much you followed this, but he's connected to, I believe I first heard about him through Esther Meek. And so Esther Meek, Drew Johnson, have you heard Paul talk about them? 
No, I don't think so. So there's like Esther Meek, Drew Johnson. I put the three of them together, like Michael Polanyi, um, who are uh, – because that's it started with Michael Polanyi and then Esther Meek learned from him and Drew Johnson learned from him. And, and a lot of what they talk about is that um, liturgy and just how – how our knowing is embodied. Like, I think they're really central to this whole argument of like, one of the things, I don't want to go too much into this, Danny. This deserves a whole talk. But like, Michael Pagliani talked about um, subsidiary focal integration was one of his big terms. So he said like, in order to see, and the way you could illustrate it is like riding a bike or playing guitar, playing piano, driving a car. There are little things that when you're learning that process, you have to focus on right subsidiary things of the of like the whole vision that you need to focus on in order to learn the skill but then like jordan peterson would say you learn that skill you build neural pathways where like it takes it out of your prefrontal cortex and puts it into like a subconscious part of you Mm -hmm. but then that's that's what a habit is and then you have this habit that you no longer have to focus on and think about it's embodied but it's knowledge it's embodied right. knowledge that you did have to focus on. Some of those things happen to us just biologically, evolutionarily, that we don't even think about. Right. Just, and you, and you couldn't. Knowledge you, is embodied. Yeah. And you couldn't do some of those things if you tried to focus on them. No, no, right? you couldn't. So, like riding a bike. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that's the thing. Like I, teaching my kid, my four-year-old to ride a bike, yep. you know, without the training areas right now. Like, you know, you could see he's like, you know, trying to think about, oh, I got to, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And, you know, eventually he's going to get it to where it's just like naturally just not thinking about it at all. But if you try to, like if you, even someone who knows how to ride a bike, if I try to really think about how to properly balance and do all this kind of thing, I tried to make that a conscious process. You can't ride a bike. Yeah, you can't ride a bike. Or you, or you can't actually see down the road. So that's kind of his point (laughs) is like, if you don't, if you don't learn to how integrate these subsidiary things, you can't actually have vision to ride a bike, Mm -hmm. to drive. Because you, because you bring all that in subconsciously through habituated practice, and then you can actually ride the bike. Playing guitar is that way. I'm learning to play guitar. Mm-hmm. Like if you, you have to get to the point where you stop. You have to focus on it to train your hand. Right. But once your hand is trained, if you keep focusing on it, you actually can't play the song. You can't read right. the music. Yeah. Or you can't sing or whatever. Right. And so, and that's how that. Just that heuristic, that tool of understanding that, I think, allows us to see this big picture a lot better. So D.C. Schindler is from that crowd. Esther, Esther Meek talked about him, and he's a brilliant guy. And he has this video that uh, Michael, uh, Michael Lady uh, sent to me um, from this community. And, it's about, and he talks about beauty. And this is connected to like the Dostoevsky quote of beauty will save the world. And it's directly connected to the truth thing that you're talking about. Mm. What's wrong with the West? The reason Dostoevsky, I think, said beauty will save the world is that beauty out of like the, the, the triad of truth, goodness, and beauty. Beauty is the one thing that he says, at least for a still, simultaneously plays instantly in the subjective and the objective at the same time. Mm. He says, you get both at the same time. When you experience beauty subjectively, you're experiencing something that isn't merely subjective. You're experiencing something that is also transcendent and objective, but you, right. you do it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I actually think what the West needs to do to repent is get at that same place with truth. Hmm. Interesting. What would that look like to get to both the subjective and objective at the same time with truth? Uh this is the, well, this is all the stuff that I always talk about that I don't even quite know what I'm talking about and that 
that most people I think misunderstand me is that to me, what it means is that, and this is why I love the Peterson um, or even the Jesus. I talk about this verse all the time, the, the take the log out of your eye to help the brother. And like Jordan Peterson, tell the truth or at least don't lie. And this is the orthodox understanding of theosis is that when you purify so Jesus, when he says, it's one of these obscure passages that people are like, what is Jesus talking about? But when he says, I think it's in Matthew 7, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is not healthy, your whole body will be full of evil, essentially. Mm-hmm. Those words are really interesting in the Greek anyhow. Right. But, I, but I essentially think that one of the, the way that I would say it currently is that I think the process of theosis or purifying your eye, I would use those simultaneously or interchangeably, is, is, is you start by er, just eradicating self-deception. You burn off the dead wood. You stop lying to yourself. So that whole process of us not really knowing what we believe, that's, yeah. all, bound, that's all bound up in, in sin and self-deception and corruption. I think if you get to the point where maybe this is what theosis is when you get to the point where you don't lie to yourself anymore or others at all. I think, I think even choice agency telling the truth, I think the subjective and the objective meet. Okay. I think that's what wholeness is. Right. I mean, it's kind of like the, the vision of, you know, you know, kind of like whenever we're in heaven, you know, we will know even as we are known, right? Yes. And so it's, it's kind of like admitting that we don't even know ourselves, right? Yes. And so like really the only the only one who knows us really is God. Um, and like we're called to to try and like be honest with ourselves. We're, we're always going to fall short of that. Um, but I think that's why that, that phrase is that like, you know, you will know even as you are known is so powerful yeah. if you really understand it because you're like, that's the Bible telling you that you don't know yourself, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if Which you don't is know very yourself, true. Like, yeah. I would affirm a lot of those Calvinist tendencies of like Jeremiah 79, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like, right. I know it. Like, I'm, an, I'm like a half crazy person neurotic. Like, I, I know that and I'm in my head all the time and yeah. analyzing right like, and, and um but I think part of the freedom part of the freedom that I've found and this is maybe just my experience I'm not trying to universalize it part of my experience is in is that like within orthodoxy that all just shut off hmm. like it just stopped I don't I just I think it was the whole like and I'll say I'll say this to Sam sometimes like the whole the whole um, process of trying to, because part of my deconstruction was, you know, figuring out I didn't know what I thought I knew about hell and just being like, whoa, what does that mean? Uh, what, is, you know, what don't I, what do I think I know, but I don't really know about all sorts of stuff. Right. It was, it was almost like the, the, it was the experience, I think, like of what Peugeot would say almost of just like, the expression of the infinite is also infinite. It's all of a sudden I got hit with that Jordan Peterson, like, oh, the world is full of like, there's infinite facts. Right. You know? Um, and, and like, I was just like, holy cow, I have no idea what I, like, I have no idea what I really think. And like my whole, the, the, I found out God by his grace, I would say showed me that I was, that my feet 
my intellectual feet weren't planted on a firm rock. I just, I had no idea. And, um, but what, so then I was trying to, and I don't know, somewhat existentially, I've never had the problem of, I've always wanted to figure out what I know, of, what I think about all these topics. So then I went down this road of like early stuff and I'm reading about like Nestorian controversies and like the, the, my, uh, like, I never heard of this, but like uh, myophysites and diaphysites, mon- monophysitus, diaphysitus, and like all the dual nature of Christ and all these early church debates. And I'm like, I don't know what I think about that. I have no idea. Like I barely right. understand what the people who hold the positions are saying. And then, and then I got to the point of like, kind of like what we were saying earlier. It's not that I don't care about what mm-hmm. I think about those issues and what they are, but it's a realization that like, I can't ever nail all that stuff down. Right. And I think, and I think orthodoxy allows me to stay in this place of like, I have earnest convictions and thoughts about all sorts of things, but just like in my hierarchy of what I value, my, I just, my own self-awareness of how I identify and how I think about things and what I think I believe just went, went way down. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, and, and I just submit to the church. Right. Because I think it's the only thing that, that holds truth transcendent of time. Right. And I think that that's one of the, the weaknesses of Protestants um, is that we don't, I don't think this was true of the reformers, but it's definitely true of like mainline and even evangelicals today is that we don't take church history or submission to the church and the teachings of the church over thousands of years. We don't really take those very seriously. Like we feel, we feel very comfortable doing like treating it like a salad bar, right? I'll take what I like. I'm going to leave everything else and I'm just going to move on. Right. Well, I mean, they can't though, really. Right. I mean, that's what like sola scriptura, that's the spirit of what that is, is that it's not the, I'm not submitting to the tradition. I'm submitting to the Bible. Right. And what, I, but, but all that is still bound up in individualism because it's what I rationally apprehend and can see of the infinite facts in the Bible. You're playing right. And yeah. And then obviously like, you know, you get a hundred people and have them interpret the Bible. You're going to get a hundred different interpretations of any, right. you know, so, so you're like, even the, the idea that you are capable of interpreting the Bible correctly on your own by yourself without like a larger community and a larger context and all that kind of stuff is silly. Mm-hmm. Also, I always talk to whenever people really go hardcore on the sola scriptura. And like, again, I grew up Presbyterian, like PCA, very conservative, that kind of stuff. So I'm not like, not, I don't, it's not like I take the Bible lightly or anything else like that. No. Um, but whenever someone like really goes hardcore on the sola scriptura, I was like, but you do know that it was church tradition that chose what's in the Bible, right? right. Like what's, what's canon was not, it's not like Jesus handed us the Bible. Um, it, like that was, that was agreed upon by the church. Right. Over hundreds of years right it's not like yeah. it just like dropped out of the sky this wasn't like joseph right. smith with the you know golden tablets or anything else like that and so um so that even that that's a non-starter to me it's always kind of been a non-starter the soul of scripture thing um mm-hmm. just because of it now that's not to say that all of church history is pretty or should be submitted to either and so that's where it become it does become like a problem like you know some of those roman catholic popes were not probably not even Christian, right? I mean, you have Medici's buying papacies and that kind of stuff. And you're like, mm. well, am I, am I really going to submit to 
some of those things. So that's where like a broader, that's what, that's why orthodoxy is an interesting, it's under talked about. It's kind of like in America, it's Protestant and Catholic, right? That's generally about it. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, but you have this other like kind of branch of Christianity and orthodoxy that has also traditions. And so, um, and a very long one tracing back to the same time period that we're talking about, like the, you know, the, the Catholics want to claim, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that. And so that's where I, I, I find it, I would find it interesting to bring orthodoxy more into that. So when we talk about church tradition and church history and what exactly does it mean to submit to the church, mm. if you're bringing in these very, because I mean, the, the Orthodox church also was pretty secluded from mm. Western Christianity for yeah. a really long time. Yeah. Even by Augustine's day, he's, he's talking about like that. He's basically saying, I'm reading some of these Orthodox guys and these Greeks. And he's like, I don't really know what they're saying. My Greek's not good enough. So basically, he's just saying, like, I don't know if they're right. Maybe they have a point. I have no idea. So I'm just going to read the Latin, right, because he's yeah. more comfortable with it. And so, yeah. like, they've been pretty secluded. But and that's where I find it interesting. If you could bring in the Orthodoxy and the Catholic and kind of the Protestant perspectives, and then you say, okay, well, what do we have in common, actually? Mm. Because it, it, if we're all in agreement about some things, like the divinity of Christ and that kind of stuff, then that's not an open-handed thing. Like, you can't deny that and still claim, like, you're in line with church tradition. But then I wanted to talk about, I, I saw briefly the discussion that you were having or like back and forth. I didn't really dig into it about the Rhett and Link stuff. So what is mm. your, you're talking about, you know, you don't want to like exclude people and that's, you feel like a lot of the propositional knowledge is that, right? It's a way of excluding and that kind of thing. But what is your position on like excommunication? Mm. Um, what, does the, what does the Orthodox Church teach about that? How does that work? So... Short answer, I don't know. I don't know how the Orthodox Church views excommunication. Um, and a lot of it is, um, <clears throat> so, I mean, there are, so like, for example, I, I think in a local parish, if you have someone who's Orthodox, who's kind of like Jewish. And I mean, and this is going to, you know, this isn't good to like Protestant writers or elephants, but I think the way that it would play out is that if, if a priest sees someone or the priests see people who are consistently in sin Mm -hmm. and it's not just like by, it's not, it's not merely just like by articulating things propositionally that are different than the ecumenical councils or something, but people who are consistently practicing in sin, I think they would, they would withhold sacraments. Mm-hmm. So they would with, so they would just be like, you're not, you're not partaking of communion. Um, in confession, you know, like I'm not giving absolution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, that came up. Cause that came up recently. I went to like this young adults Q and a the other day and they were talking about confession, absolution, how that relates to things like, cause it's interesting. I actually just went for my kid's school cause they, they go to a Catholic school. Um, I had to go take this training for like volunteering, which was this like three hour thing, mainly about like child abuse, which was just a really great time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but so they were asking the priest at um at confession and i just found this interesting is that like you within the sacrament of confession the priest is actually bound 
and th this was interesting. I don't know, Jen and I were talking about this. Some people will like it, some people won't. But the, the way that that works out legally is the priest has no obligation, even as a mandatory reporter in confession, to report something. Right. Like he actually isn't supposed to. Mm -hmm. um, and so my priest was saying that sometimes, like in, a, in cases, and it hasn't happened a lot, but where someone is confessing something that uh, is ongoing, where somebody's da in danger, where they'll, where like there's some mandatory reporter thing happening, he said he'll just put a hard stop. He'll just be like, okay, stop. We're not doing this anymore. We're going to, we're done with the sacrament. We need to talk mm -hmm. outside of this. Gotcha. Because, and they, so they put the hard boundaries on that. Um, so that, I mean, that's a little bit of an aside, but it's related to your question of excommunication. I think that's the way that they really view it is that it's not, because I know there are people at our parish, I think, who aren't, who aren't considered to be um, held in, in communion and community, but they come, they participate. People are nice to them. They don't get communion. Mm -hmm. uh, they, you know, the priest, the pre it's withholding sacraments is the short version. I'll talk for a half an hour about that, but that's the short version. No, I think it's interesting because I, I didn't know with the Orthodox, I'm, I'm obviously more familiar with Catholic, you know, where there's an, there is an official like excommunication, you know, process. It's not just withholding Catholics. I didn't know if Orthodoxy had something similar. There maybe is, but I'm yeah. just not aware. So I guess, so, um, okay. So you're saying okay, if the priest, We'll, we'll call that for the purpose of this discussion, excommunication. Um, mm -hmm. If the priest sees someone that who's consistently in sin and not repenting and, and, you know, just kind of like behaving consistently and that he might excommunicate them. What about if the person, so, but it wouldn't be if I just said, hey, I don't think that Jesus was really God. You wouldn't excommunicate someone for that. Um, that's a propositional claim. I don't I guess know. Yeah. I guess my question would be, if if because I actually don't think that most Protestant churches would actually excommunicate excommunicate someone for just believing that or saying, "Hey, I don't really think that Jesus was God." I don't actually don't think they would. I think they would cross a line though, and I I was wondering if you what you thought of this. If the person was going around teaching mm. that Jesus was not God, right? It, other part than you just struggling with it, like saying a small group and you're like, guys, I just don't think that he really was and that kind of stuff. And it's more like your internal, like, this is what I believe, or this is what I'm mm -hmm. struggling with versus me going around and trying to convince all the other congregants that Jesus really wasn't God. That would be yeah. probably an excommunicable offense. So I was wondering, cause that's where it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's where the propositional statement meets action and sowing division yeah. within the church and that kind of stuff and so i was no. wondering whether or not that would meet your bar for like excluding because it is yeah. embodied no, i think point. that's probably i think that's probably true i mean because then i think at that point you're manifesting a divisive spirit you're seeking right. to divide the body of christ which is right uh which is not okay which i would say you could do also from like the top down version if if like a, a pastor or priest came in and said like this is something you're individually working through honestly and earnestly you need to get out well mm -hmm. that's being divisive you're dividing the body of christ because you because you or he doesn't really know what he believes like time right. is the revelator type of a thing right. um so no i think that's probably pretty similar to how it would play out i think just the difference is is almost uh it's a it's a matter of emphasis probably like um mm -hmm. I think in the Western churches, a lot more talk about all the propositions and things are framed that way. And even like my experience in the church, 
in one of my church experiences that I went into is um, part of their statement of faith. There was like 13 things and one of them was affirming eternal conscious torment. And at that point I would have probably identified as like an annihilationist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, I can't like kind of like Sam in a very Protestant Luther way. Like, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God. Right. You know, I can't affirm that. I don't think the Bible teaches it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't at all. And so, and so that was almost like a, <clears throat> you could almost think of that as like a sacramental way of withholding community, but it was based on proposition. Right. You know, yeah. within my, that church experience, whereas like I was telling Sam in our conversation, the Orthodox would put it a lot more, I think, along the lines of practice and embodied things. Like even with someone like Sam, I was saying, like, say, theoretically, Sam, his evangelical journey, which it, it didn't happen this way because he baptized, I'm sure, at an earlier age. I'm guessing they didn't do infant baptism. I'm guessing they were what was his What was his denomination before? Biblical Unitarianism. And I don't know what... I don't, yeah, I don't know, know what that would be, but if I had to guess, I would say they probably believe in adult baptism. Just guessing. But, yeah. I, but I would assume then that he was baptized within that tradition. But let's just say he was raised biblically Unitarian. That's what he thinks. That's what he propositionally assents to. But somewhere along the way, he had a baptism at a church. Like, say, um, you know, some established church. Like, say he was going to a Lutheran church for some reason that was Trinitarian and he had a Trinitarian baptism. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is what I was trying to tell him. And then if he came, cause he says, you know, he can't in good faith profess the Nicene creed cause he doesn't believe it because of s- certain things in it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's where that whole like subjective objective truth thing gets and like, and just professing and knowing that you can't, I think if Sam changed the way that he thought about it, I think let's just say theoretical Sam who had a Trinitarian baptism. If he was wanting to become Orthodox, I think the priest would say you had a Trinitarian baptism. That's fine. Mm. Like you don't even necessarily individually believe in the Trinity. I don't necessarily care that much. (laughs) And then if you're able to profess the Nicene Creed, almost like a way of humility of just being like, I don't actually believe this. I don't think this is true. I don't necessarily think that it's within the Bible, but you have the humility to just be like, maybe, maybe that's my limitation versus the limitation of the church and Nicaea and whatever. And I don't know. So I'm going to profess the creed in, in a spirit of, of, of ultimate kind of modern agnosticism about that. Yeah. Even though you have personal convictions, I think the Orthodox would be like, that's cool. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I, the Certainly, I don't think the Catholics Doing are it is either. Doing what matters. But, right, yeah. Certainly the Catholics wouldn't, um, wouldn't let you join. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. That's me imagining. Yeah. That's yeah. my imagined ideal world, which I think is true, but may not be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then certainly Protestants wouldn't. I think there's a, you know, there's a higher bar for joining than, and there's a high bar for excommunicating. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, you're not going to be able to say, no, I don't believe Jesus is God. You're not going to become a Catholic if, if that's your position. You're not going to become a Protestant for, for serious Protestants, I guess. Um, but they probably wouldn't excommunicate you in the Catholic church if you just like 
told your priest, I, I don't think that Jesus was God in like confession or something like that. Right. Um, if you went around teaching it. And so this is where I would say like, you know, it's, so for you, it's the sowing division part and it's almost not even really important what it is that you're sowing division about. Um, yeah. Like the propositional knowledge itself, like the proposition itself. It's not like these you can sow division about, no problem. These you yeah. can't. Um, and so this well, is where the, like, well, I think the propositional the thing, thing is hard because it's, right. it's a modern phenomenon. Like I don't think ancient people had these discussions because of, I think we've had a shift in consciousness. Like I think all these things were, were much more integrated before where like people weren't even thinking so propositionally. So it's a different thing. But like Paul says this stuff clearly, like, you know, you're sleeping with your father's wife. That's that. Nope. Doesn't yeah. work. Right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's, he's explicitly saying like, are we not to judge the people inside the church? Like don't judge right. the people outside. You let them do what they want, but mm-hmm. we are going to be judging the people inside the church. Of course. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, and this is where the retinling thing, like to come first full circle about that, because I do think that some of these people, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, if it was my church, I wouldn't, excommunicate someone who thought like hey i don't actually think that the bible i don't actually think that homosexuality is a sin right however some of these like ret and link types it does seem to me that the proposition aside what you're doing is sowing division right by going around teaching it and like loudly proclaiming the truth the the church to be bigoted and all this kind of stuff on these particular topics there is a certain like amount of like division that you're sowing the topic aside um, where you're actually like going to people outside of the church and loudly and publicly calling out the church for being evil in some way and that kind of stuff. And so that's where like it does in a lot of these, these guys types, it comes across to me, not like a, I'm an earnest seeker. It comes across more like a, I'm, ju- I'm standing in judgment over the church and sowing division myself. Um, yeah, that's, well, that's I- the way I see a lot of this. I think it's it's tough. Well, so, I mean, so Rhett and Link are no longer members of whatever right. church they were sure. part of. And so that's a little bit of a different thing. And I think I said this in our conversation, Sam and Jeff and I, is that what's hard about it, I think, is that you could say, yes, you're coming out loudly. You're coming out now and talking about this, which I'm of two minds about. Like, I don't have my unit of vision about this yet. <laughs> I, I agree with what you're saying. I can totally see that. And I don't, and, and do I think it's going to be unsettling for a lot, a lot of people and, and trouble their faith for probably, for probably quite a few people? Yes. But this is where I would come in and say, like, it's, it's kind of like, I would say it this way is that I heard once that like nothing ever came out of the mouth of a drunk that wasn't in there to begin with. (laughs) So like people will excuse, you know, Mm -hmm. I was drunk and I said something. No, that's in there. You just, the barriers were down. Um, If someone starts to struggle in their faith because of red red and link, it's the same thing. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's just a process of revealing what was really there. And I honestly think that right now we're in a, I think what this Jordan Peterson meaning crisis, Paul Vanderclay, Verveke, Peugeot, this little corner of the internet, all the stuff that we're talking about is we're trying, I think we're in a transitionary period 
of figuring all this out and figuring out what's going on. And, I, and so it's almost like, it's almost like a birthing pains. I almost think of it about like birthing pains of like the beginnings of what Owen Barfield called final participation. Hmm. I think we're working through the ruins of modernity a little bit. Yeah. And so I agree with that, that it's going to cause a lot of problems. And you could have said like, well, Rhett and Link, what you should have done was you should have just owned up and bit the bullet and, and, and spoke about this in your churches, in your community with these people that you knew and loved and, and, and work some of this through. I think they were doing that a little bit. I think there were people they were talking to, but clearly, but this is what's so pernicious. I think about this whole situation is, and they've said this many times, they were scared to, and I know why they were scared to, because I did talk to people in my local community right. for a long time and it didn't go well. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's where this whole thing is. Sorry. Right. Yeah. And that's why really I, I wouldn't. Yeah, no. And I agree with that. I don't think that, yes, it is hard. And it's not like the church, especially in, in America and is not, it's not, especially evangelical <laughs> uh, circles on some these issues. It's not like they're bathing themselves with grace and, and all that kind of stuff. It's that's not what's whole, they're not they're not they're not doing that a lot. At the same they, time, yeah, yeah. At the same time, it, it does sometimes. I do feel like well, you just want them to change their mind about something. At the same time, and you're like now you're calling them out not because of the lack of grace with which you yeah. they spoke about it. You're calling them out because they don't agree with you, which is exactly what they're doing. Right actually 100 and, and like so like both of you actually like i so I, I don't really want to sit here and like hear you judging them or whatever you're like I, you guys are all doing the same thing from my perspective right. like and like agree with me or you're a bad person you're a bad christian whatever okay i mean if we, if we want to do that it's not super helpful to anyone but what what they are is now is like almost in the uk they have these atheist churches right what red yeah. link almost are now although a softer version because they're agnostic or even hopeful Christian, they're almost like in a very Protestant, uh, very evangelical, just agnostic church mm -hmm. yeah. that hasn't officially formed yet. Um, right. And so like this is, they're out of the frying pan into the fire. Like they have, they have fundamentally the same worldview. They've yeah. just come to a greater self-realization through through a process where they're more honest about it right internally but this is where like the like the george Hewson, i think it's rule nine or whatever of like assume the person you're talking to knows something you don't well like the the problem that happened is neither like my experience Rhett and link never talked about it but neither neither party really did and probably at the time i didn't either is like we, we had a disagreement about a doctrine and, and like this is why we talked about like the hopeful convert with Sam and Jeff and I is that like churches are perfectly with like someone coming into the church. It's a hopeful convert if they're eventually going to become them. And they're right. like, they're okay if that process is a little, take some time and whatever. But like if that person comes in and, and like never gets in line with all the things there will, will reach a point where they're just like, no, you're not okay. Right. But then, so like we have to figure out how can we have, this is what I would say. The church needs to figure out how they can have university propositional diversity as, mm -hmm. as individual earnest convictions 
um, and still maintain unity. And I think you have that in the objective sense that can only be held transcendently in some way outside of time because none of us see it that way. I mean, we right. just don't have that kind of vision. It's, it's an iconic vision. And, and I don't know, the retin links are, because I agree with you. They, like when it comes down to certain issues that they can no longer go to church, whether it's evolution or homosexuality, um, they think they're right. And, and they think the church needs to change. And the church thinks, no, we're right. And you right. need to change. Yeah. Um, and I think it has to come down. And I think it comes down to that, like the, the individual and collective and time and truth and the subjectivity and objectivity is like, how does that all work? I think right. that's the question of, of the modern West right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the modern modernity, it, it's weird. It's like we've, we, we sank back into kind of like a Gnostic heresy um, with a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, and we just, we don't call it that. Right. Yep. We're not, we're not talking about Gnostic. Cause we know that's right. not right. Yeah. We know that's not right. But like, but we, we've totally bought a lot of the Gnostic problems. Right. Yep, Where I agree. And this is, this is, I think, one of the things, and, and Dreyer, that in that tweet thread that he was replying to, he was getting into some of like the, like the participatory actions and why, why is it that, you know, young men and that kind of stuff seem to start getting like kind of, I see kind of a migration to things like orthodoxy or Anglicanism, mm -hmm. um, I think, and I think it is because we're starting to realize that, okay, all of this knowledge, all these propositions and these like statements of faith or science or whatever it is, or politics yep. and that kind of stuff, actually, we don't find that nearly as fulfilling or meaningful as we thought that we would, right? It's like, once we get our theology straight, church is going to be great. There's no right? responsibility in it. No, there's no responsibility in it. Or like, okay, now my, you know, my politician one, happy now? What'd that get yeah. you, right? right. Um, you know, so like science, okay, now we understand how this particular thing happens. Okay. Right. And I want, I want to look, so Dreher, he kind of summarized it uh, by saying, and I think this is true. He, he said like, um, Uh, okay, where did he say it exactly? So he said, I can't tell you how liberating it was to me as a male to sense that I was given something to conquer mm. myself. Right. And like that, oh my goodness. Like if we could get, that gets you out of just like the scapegoating. It gets you out of the judgment. It gets you out of the speck in your brother's eye. It gets you out of all of that. It's, it's clean your room. Right. It's Jordan yeah, Peterson. And it's, yeah. And I think that that's why also like stoicism has, you know, kind of started making a little yeah. bit of a comeback because it's like, you know, kind of master yourself. I think it's wrong in that I don't think that conquering yourself looks like being like Spock or Lieutenant, mm. you know, Commander right. Dana or whatever. I don't think, and like a lot of times stoicism will kind of do that. Just like just deny mm. your emotions, right? Just mm -hmm. like detach from them and, and suppress them and that kind of stuff. And what I feel like orthodoxy is giving you in a lot of ways is, no, you're supposed to conquer yourself, but not by not feeling the things that you feel or like, it's not about ignoring them. Right. right. Because that's not what Jesus did. Right. Um, it's not like Jesus never felt pain or sadness or 
any of those kind of things or anxiety even about, you know, when he's in the cross and he's like, he's clearly nervous about what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so like, so conquering yourself, like is something to do that's really hard. Um, but then also you're not, you're not taking the cheap way out and trying to suppress parts of you either. Right. right. That like, because if I just, okay, if I just, if I'm not emotional around anything, I can't overreact. I can't get mad when someone says something to me. Like my wife says something that's not fair. I, I won't get mad because I'm a stoic now. I'm suppressing all of that, but that's yeah. not what we're called to do. And so I think that that's kind of like a misapplied version of conquering yourself is the stoicism. And that's where I do think that what Dre was saying, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Like if that's, it's a harder road though, right? Oh, it's yeah. a harder road than just like than idealizing or idolizing our ideas. Yeah. Or, um, and it's a harder road than being a stoic and trying to suppress what we actually feel. Can I jump off of that and say something? Yeah. So there's two yeah. things. I, th- this, I was going to say this earlier. I was talking about it to my wife, but so do you remember the first thing before I go into that is Nathan Jacobs had talked about stoicism and I didn't know this. He had said in one of his conversations with Paul that stoicism, a lot of the ways that it's uh, conceived of, and this is the way I thought about it, isn't apathy. It's not that you Mm -hmm. don't care about things. He said, like when I'm lecturing and my students have apathy, he said what stoicism really was classically was that it was, you were supposed to create a buffer between the will and the passions. Mm-hmm. So he said what happened is like something would happen and you flare up, the passions flare up, the animal, the instinct flares up. But he says the human right. being in stoicism was like you create a space where you you aren't just a slave to those passions. Where like right. those passions are real and they're legitimate, but that you don't you don't necessarily attach your will to them just instantly. Mm-hmm. And that's what sto- which which that seems really Christian, but anyhow, so when you were saying, um, you're, uh, you were talking about, it's not just like submitting to your ideas, it's conquering yourself, really. What that reminded me of, so two, I was talking to my wife about this, we were talking recently about how I am, um, I can tend to be somewhat of a zealot, and I'm pretty passionate about things, and like I can't, like there are just certain things I wouldn't be able to do. So, so I've been talking a lot about recently um, the movie, the hidden life, a hidden life, that new Terrence Malick movie. Okay. No, I haven't seen that. So it's about, um, it was pretty limited to release, but it's, a, it's about this guy who's Catholic. Now I think he's been sainted actually. Um, but his name is Franz. What's his last name? Franz something. It's a, it's a husband and wife, Franz and Fanny. I'm forgetting their last name. But it's a, it was a, they were Austrian, I believe. And it was during World War II. And essentially, they were farmers. It's a beautiful movie. Terrence Malick's the best. But he essentially got called up to serve in the military. And, um, and essentially, he just, he couldn't. Like, he wasn't able to. He just said, I can't do this. And, and the whole movie is about this process of him not being able to do it. And, and, and it's this constant tension. He's talking with his lawyer and, his, and, he, and he's at his trial. And all these people are saying, like, they're either yelling at him. They're angry. They're like, how can you defame your country and your people and your wife? And what are you doing? And he's like, this is a pointless stand. It's serving nothing. It's accomplishing nothing. No one's going to follow you. It's pointless. And all these people are saying all these things. and he's. Um, 
or they'll say just like just sign it it's pointless you don't have to mean it just sign it it's irrelevant like it can you can sign it serve in the military say like you want to work in the in the medical stuff you won't even have to fight just sign it and ultimately at the end of the day he just he struggles over it and he just can't and 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 he at the same time doesn't judge anyone else he's just like i can't there's something in me i can't do it i can't do it and my wife was saying like the whole time we're just talking about it yesterday just sitting together crying because she all because <laughs> she realizes like the whole time watching the movie one of the things that was hardest for her is she just knows like a, she's like that's me like if that happened like that would be me i wouldn't be able to like i there's no way that that's almost like my i'm a weird person i'm an enneagram four but like that's almost my fantasy like i'd love to be a martyr okay. like i just would love it i mean it would suck it would be hard but i would love it and um but so this is what i want to talk about the contrast of that so at the same apparently when he was before he made this movie terrence malick had written a letter to martin scorsese essentially asking him like what does God want of us, more or less? They're both Christian. Mm-hmm. And because um, Scorsese had made, and we've talked about this a little bit in the channel, but the movie Silence, which was a book by Shizako Endo, which is brilliant. So like, I want to parallel these two movies. Mm-hmm. So like Silence is this movie about these Jesuit priests, uh, Spanish, the main one is Rodrigo, uh, Rodriguez, who uh, goes, they go to Japan was very, it's very post-Christian, although there was a Christian heritage there to be missionaries under this massively oppressive regime. And, um, and one of the ways that the Jap- it's, it's so cunning, like the way that the Japanese leaders, and these are true things, that they would make, pe- they would root out Christians, is they would, they had these things called fumis, which were just like little, little, um, like almost icons, but they were like, textured like uh plaques or something that would either have like christ or the theotokos or mary or something on them and they would they would put them out in front of people because they'd be like are you christians no 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 none of us are christians because they know i mean they kill them or Mm -hmm. put them in prisons and that so they put out this fumi and they'd say okay step on it and and then a lot of times and so there's that's that's like the core part of the whole movie is there's this tension of like this is how they're outing a lot of christians a lot of people wouldn't step on it and they would end up in prison camps and die some people would they'd step on it but come back to christian community step on it come back to christian like this constant mm-hmm. silence is one of the most brilliant movies and books i've ever read and so there's this priest who's like also a zealot who's just like i will not deny christ i'm gonna go serve these people i will die I will do all this and the spoiler alerts, but the, like one of the pinnacle scenes in the movie is he's been captured. He's been interrogated. There are all these philosophical conversations about, about things like, you know, it doesn't matter. Just do it. It's what matters is what's in your heart. It doesn't matter if you step on this thing, that's orthodoxy and Protestantism. That's Gnosticism. Yeah. Like, right. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this priest is like, you know, he can't do it. He can't do it. They take him out this one night. He can just hear this weird sound, this weird sound. Every night he keeps hearing and they bring him out one night and he realizes this weird sound that he's heard are these people wailing that they've hung upside down. They've put little slits behind their ears where they're bleeding, slowly bleeding out over these pits of dead bodies and excrement hanging upside down and pitch black. And they're just making inhuman sounds. 
Hmm. And there are these Christians that they're torturing who wouldn't step on the Fumi. And, and they bring him out and they say to this priest, the head priest, the one who's converted all these people, who's been doing the sacraments, who's been leading these people, and they say, step on it and we'll stop. Step on it and we'll stop torturing these people. And, uh, and so, it, like, he's just, there's such a conflict in this guy of, like, what, what is faithfulness right here? Right. And he, hear, and he hears this voice, and this is the part, like, I was reading this book, like, in a pub, I, I was in a coffee shop, and Rodrigo, Rodriguez hears this voice, and he says, and it says, step, step, it's for this reason I came into the world, it was to be trampled upon by men. And he steps and just collapses. It's like it's it's one of the yeah. it's one of the most powerful. I took my breath away when I read yeah. it. And like and what's so weird, right? Is you have Franz in a hidden life, and you have Rodrigo Rodriguez in silence. And this is what I told Jen, and I said, and I think they're both faithful. Mm-hmm. And they did opposite things, right? Um, it's such, it's such, those two movies are like such a, those are, those are like the art of our times for Christianity. Yeah. I think. And I don't even know what I, I don't even know what all that means. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Um, but it's, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful juxtaposition. And I said, I just don't, I feel, I feel incredible resonance with, with both of those responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, it, it, it just, it does go to show just kind of like the incredible emptiness of the the propositions without action, right? Without sacrifice or whatever, yeah. right? And without that, without that kind of, and so that's where like, whenever you, you know, I always, and this is why I wanted to talk to you is when I see you talking this card, it's like, actually, I don't think that I disagree with him. I think that like, like it does seem empty if I, I just I can memorize Calvin's Institutes and that kind of stuff and it would be very empty if it didn't actually cause any change in me if I, I can memorize the Bible if it doesn't cause any change mm-hmm. in me if it doesn't cause me to do something different if it doesn't help me conquer myself in that sense sorry my one second my room is going off okay um yeah, so if it doesn't, and so that's where I, I yeah, and, and that, that art is, is really great. I, I really liked Hacksaw Ridge for a very similar yes. um, reason, um, is that, you know, the, that faith actually caused a change in that person. Like, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a, a you know, a rule that I realized, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yeah, so I, I like that. And I do think that that's one of the reasons that, you know, increasingly orthodoxy is drawing a lot of young men because we don't want, we don't want to feel disembodied anymore. Like it feels very empty, right? Um, and it's just, and I think that like social media and everything else is, is exacerbating the problem, right? Because increasingly right. it's just, yeah. it's just words, right? I We're agree. just talking. We're just yeah. saying things and, you know, we're arguing about this or that or the other thing and whatever, but it seems so very empty and like a waste of time. Even for someone like me who loves theology and philosophy and that kind of stuff, you're like, I love right. this stuff and I'll talk about it. 
But honestly, what I like to do more than writing, like, you know, going back and forth on whatever is actually just talking to someone about ideas because there's a difference when I can see your face and you're, you know, I'm looking in your eyes, even though we're sitting across the country and all that kind of stuff, there's a difference there, right? Where like, we're talking about something and it means something and and maybe just maybe we'll both take something away and it'll change us. Yeah. And that's where I, I do think that, you know, we talk about, that is one of the things that, you know, um, oh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan talks about the medium is the message, right? Um, and so, you know, the idea is that, you know, what's, what's important, you know, what his point was is that, listen, we can talk about what's said or what's written and that kind of stuff, the content, right? The real message is actually the medium in which you send it. Um, because you know, what we did with like writing and that kind of stuff, what we did was we elevated just the words and the ideas to be like Mm -hmm. the highest. Um, and you know, but once we start going around that, and so now no longer is it's, it's that now there's stuff like what Paul does where it's conversations between people. Right. Yeah. And I feel like almost weirdly technology is getting us back to a more honest conversation between two real people, because I can write, you know. I can write, you know, a huge think piece on why Sam's a heretic and that kind of stuff. But if I'm sitting there talking to Sam, I'm not going to say those things, right? I'm, I'm going right. to engage him as a as an image bearer of God, and right. we're going to talk about things. And it's not going to be nearly as antagonistic as it might could be if right. we just treated them as the ideas and the words and that kind of stuff. Right. And so that's where I do think that like the more church can get back to that to the actual interpersonal connections and like the living and acting out. And that's where liturgy and everything Mm -hmm. else comes full circle where it's not just remembrance. I hate that. I I do not, even as a Protestant, I don't like the just mere remembrance of communion and that kind of thing. Like that's not, it's nominalism. Yeah, it is totally. Yeah. 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 And you're like, okay, well, so nothing really is happening here. Um, you know, uh, why, why do this to remember? Why can't I remember in other ways and that kind of stuff? Like why? Um, like, yeah, let's go out for coffee or we could eat some. Right. Yeah, exactly. Good like, little hunting. You know? Yes. <laughs> Why does it got to be grapes and bread? Why then? If that's mm-hmm. all we're doing. Right. Um, and so that's where I do think that, and it's, it's so countercultural, but it's countercultural in a way that actually no one's really arguing about. Right. Like we're countercultural maybe in the, like our view on views on like homosexuality and that kind of stuff. But like now we're just getting the culture war stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we're all like, if you do the, if you really like kind of hone in on the participatory nature of worship and liturgy and all this kind of stuff, now we're being countercultural, but in a way that like, it's very, it's hard to criticize, right? This is not a culture yeah. war thing. Like no, no one's right. like, it's not like, it's not like, you know, the atheists are gonna be like, no, Gnosticism is the way and that kind of stuff. Like it's gonna be weird for them. And so right. I think that we are, and that's something, and what I like about that also is that A, it's not really threatening to anyone. Um, mm-hmm. Like no one feels judged by ask, like saying, no, we're participating in this kind of stuff. But then also, like, I do think people want that otherworldly experience that Dreyer was talking about. They want yeah. to feel like they're part of something different, right? And mm-hmm. I do think that's why actually atheist churches, atheist churches tend not to work. Mm-hmm. You're not really giving anything. There, there's no otherworldly experience, really. Like, what, what is the transcendent thing that I'm participating yeah. in? What? Yeah, nothing, nothing. transcendent. Yep. No. And so, like, then it just becomes empty words. And it or, they'll say, or they'll say love. 
Because like that's a Rhett think. Rhett right, think. Yeah. He said, if I had to say what my faith is now, it's just love. Well, th- well, okay. But is it Gnostic love? Like, what does right. that mean? Yeah, what does love Where mean? Does that and, and that, it's the same thing. With, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with, I mean, we talked about it before, like the grace. Like grace is, grace, biblical grace transforms and love does too. Yeah. So what are we, what are we transforming people into? Like, what is that vision that we have? And, you know, what, how, how am I going to be transformed by grace and love? Like, right. what is, what is the end of this? So you can't just right. say love as if it's like this anchorless thing with no vector involved and all that kind of stuff. You're right. like, no, that's not what it is. It's something else. We have to like have that conversation, but that's where I do think that Christians should almost like double down and go back to a lot of those like kind of more ancient practices of really being heavy into the liturgy and that kind of stuff because it does give that kind of transcendent feeling the same way you walk into like a European cathedral. It's just kind of overwhelming in a sense where you just like look around and it's not, this is not just a high school gym with a bunch of chairs, right? Beauty. Um, beauty. Yes. That's a, beauty. I mean, it hits the subjective and the objective at the same time. And it's undeniable. Right. It's why people, it's why music is such a thing. Atheists will talk about music and like why they don't like, why they just like, I can't explain it. Yeah. Because they so Jeffrey, can, there's... yeah, Jeffrey Miller. I don't know if you um, know who he is. He's a professor. He's an evolutionary psychology professor. I think at New Mexico State or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I follow him on Twitter. Um, he's interesting. Um, but he he tweeted this thing today that I thought that you would like. But he he said a great a beautiful piece of art can make any atheist into an agnostic. Mm. Um, and I was like, that's an interesting, yeah, because you can't, like, what? What's on, why? Why is that, yeah. why is that hitting me that way, right? Yeah. It's not just, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just molecules reflecting light back at me. Why would that do this? Why would this? And that's where I would say, yeah, that's why act as if is also important to even for atheists is because mm-hmm. when, when you're an atheist and you experience beauty, you don't act as if an atheist. Right. You don't. No. You're, you're also being an identitarian. You have the same functional worldview and you realize it's not true when you see beauty. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, Jordan, I mean, Jordan Peterson pointed that out to Sam Harris, right. Whenever they did their conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said, I mean, he did point blank say, he's like, well, you say that you're an atheist, but you don't act like you are. I just don't think, and this is the danger, like this is, so this is the danger of someone in my last one-on-one talk with Paul, when I was talking about the egoic intellect, I think it's the danger of someone like Sam Harris or even really, so I came out of this reformed Baptist intellectual tradition of people that are really into doctrine and study and mm-hmm. systematic theology and things, or like Sam Harris. There's, it's almost like I tell people this, like I'd almost rather... <laughs> Unlike the IQ spectrum, I'd almost way rather talk to someone on the very low end than hmm. someone on like the upper mid end. So I'm just like, you're not, you're, you are, you're, or the, or the very, very high end. Cause I just feel like you're brilliant, but like, you don't, you're not, you're not going deep enough. Yeah. Like there's something underneath that you're not seeing. And I, and like Sam Harris, it's, it's the, it's the, this is why I used to say all the time, like it's, the truth outside the truth you currently apprehend. It's the truth that's bigger than you. It's the in infinite behind the expression of the infinite is also infinite. You're seeing all these expressions and you think it's why the information it, it's um, who said that Alan Jacobs, but 
I think Paul Vanderclay quoted this the other day. And who quoted this? But Alan Jacobs, who's a scholar, Christian thinker, but he said the technology or the internet. No, Tim Keller said it in that old video I posted. But he said that the internet is the friend of information and the enemy of wisdom. What that pithy little act phrase means is that it's it's giving you all these facts right the infinite facts but you have no hierarchy you have no frame you have no consciousness you have no when you see truth in a modernist frame like that it's fundamentally untenable it can't continue yeah. right i think that i think that's right i think especially you know as 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 someone like gets smarter and smarter and they read more and more and everything else there's a tendency to try and tie everything up in a nice neat bow right and Makes like a better devil yeah, just just re like get rid of all the mystery, right? Yeah. Because like I'm smart enough, and I'll come up with a system where I think I've gotten rid of the woo, all the mystery, and you know, it's all like yeah. just kind of tight, tight, tightly packaged. And two things on that: that's where you know I think that the you know in the reform circles you would call the noetic effects of sin, mm -hmm. right? It is very underappreciated because you know our sin actually affects our ability to think correctly like even if you're really smart and so like just because you're really smart doesn't mean you're less sinful than someone on the low end of the iq spectrum right yeah. Yeah. what it does actually is this gives you more horsepower to engage in sin right. um intellectual yeah. sin and so like the noetic That's effects precisely. of sin the noetic events of sin is actually more dangerous for you because yep. you could actually, and this is why I think the Bible talks about teachers are going to be judged harshly and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Because like your noet, if you allow yourself to be overcome by your own sin, you're going to use your intellect for evil in a way that someone else may not be able to. Right. Um, so there's that. And it reminds me of like the ending of Job, right? So Job is sitting there and the whole book, he's trying to figure out why did all these things happen to him? Right. Why did I lose my, you know, my, wealth and my kids and all of my health and all this kind of things mm -hmm. right and so he's demanding an answer of god right i want a bow i want to know the reason right i want to like you know mm -hmm. figure it out or whatever but notice what happens at the end is god never answers that question for him right he just show he just shows up what a grace and yeah and he just shows up and he's like <laughs> okay smart guy yeah. like let's talk then you think you know everything do you okay well let's yeah. And, and, and Job had no response to it. And I think that's where I love that because it's just basically Job just realizes where his place is. His place is yeah. not to demand answers or reasons or tie everything up in a nice bow and figure mm -hmm. out what is on God's mind. That's not his place. His place is to t assume the rightful orientation toward the God of the universe. That's yeah. his place. What and that reminds that's the only lesson. That reminds me of when Jesus is just like, you know, which of you being a good father, if your son asks for food, we'll give him a stone or like we'll give him a serpent. Like God is a good father and he'll give you what you need. And a lot of times God being a good father doesn't give us answers because right. it would be worse. It would be worse. Or, yes. I don't think that because that's not our place. Right. right. So like if, exactly. if, you know, God loves us, he's not going to put us, you know, it's kind of like. I don't know if you ever watched the show, um, uh, the dog whisperer. Mm. Um, and so anyway, it's this, it's this kind of silly show on TV where this guy goes into people's houses and their dog is just like terribly behaved. Oh, like, I think neighbors I and all that stuff. Like, yeah. yeah like, a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, one of the things that he talks about is, you know, especially with like very small dogs is that, or just dogs in general is that, um, 
you know, if you don't actually discipline them, if you don't act like the alpha in your pack or whatever, mm. then they think that they need to. Right. And so then they do. And he's like, the problem with it is that they're bad at it. That's not what they were bred for. Right. They're like this little chihuahua should not be the alpha and biting the mailman and whoever comes into your house. That's not his job to protect you from, yeah. you know, neighbors visiting and all this kind of stuff. But you put him in that position where he thinks that is the case. Right. And I feel like that's God wouldn't be loving if he put us in a position that that's not what we were called to do. Right. It is not our job to have all the answers and to know everything and all that kind of stuff. Our job is right orientation toward him. And he wouldn't be a loving God if he let us get there. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, a friend sent me recently this article by some I don't know. It, it was interesting. I'll actually send it to you because I'd love your thoughts on it. It was I found it fascinating. It was written by this like genderqueer feminist. I think. Well, no, she's trans. The trans woman. Um. Yeah, I don't know. She's maybe all those things. You maybe can be. Can you be gender queer, trans? Uh, I, I I don't I don't know what these words mean anymore. So. <laughs> I don't know which ones. I don't know which ones are self. Like you can't Everything, hold together. It seems like yeah, I can't tell. But um, but anyhow, the article was it was really interesting, and it ended like it ended on a bang. I actually loved it. Um, it was a fascinating article, but it was it was talking about the basic idea of the whole thing is that everyone is feminine. Um, and, it, and it was a, my knee jerk reaction to it was to remember Preston Sprinkle and I talk a lot of, he's writing a book on gender right now. And I've been talking to him a lot and connected to all this, which is something we haven't gone into. I've been thinking a lot about gender and masculinity and femininity. And this is where I almost do agree. Cause you were saying, you were talking about conversations. The thought that I had is that, this is where I will agree with like the patriarchy people is I do think the West is inflicted with hyper patriarchy in, in our intellect. And we haven't created space for potential expression, openness, which is a very feminine thing. Right. Um, and so this article. And Dreher, Dreher made that point too, right? In like yeah. certain reform circles, especially it's hyper masculine. And I agree with that. I think that's right. Right. And so this article was saying, it, it reminded me of something that Lewis said and and then that also reminds me of this Rilke quote that I love so much is he said like the um, the most intimate experience of the divine is feminine because that is the experience of bearing and receiving. Mm -hmm. And Lewis in the end of Paralandra, um, he has some line. I need to go find it. The exact quote, and it's good, and it's and it's within this whole big cosmic dance that happens at the end of the book. Um, but because. Paralandra is about this Eve character on her own planet. And, right. Um, no, I love the space trilogy. Okay, yeah, so you've read them. Yeah. yeah. So, but it, at the end, he, he has some line because also, like, her Adam is revealed. And so it's a lot about these, like, the essences of masculinity and femininity and that glorified mm -hmm. and what that looks like. But then all of a sudden, like, some, somebody shows up and Lewis has this line where he says just, like, where he essentially says something like, because everyone is feminine in relation to the divine masculine. Mm. Yeah. Which is true. Like we just yeah. don't, I mean, that's very much like, it, this is how all those works, like father and then the son and the son is right. logo. The son is masculine is, is the divisive thing, but the son is feminine in relation to the father. Correct. So, yeah, he submit. He does not consider yes. equality with God something. Mass. Yes. He submits himself to God's will. Yeah. 
yes, we are feminine in relation to Christ as men. Right. Yeah. Women are feminine to us in relation to like a family. But like, it's just the, I don't know. It was, I don't know how that's related to what you were saying, but it peaked up somehow. It's the idea of, I, I actually think, and I've talked a little bit with Mary about this, Mary Cohan and some other mm-hmm. people, Sarah and I talk about this. Um, that's an easy way to, I think, summarize what I think the West needs uh, is we need, we need a infusion of divine femininity, which again, like to, to give another orthodox, like the Theotokos and Mary, like the female saints, that's something that's just always been a very native element within orthodoxy yeah. and Catholicism. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that, you know, the fact that we have been kind of, we've made it very hyper masculine and you're, you're removing some of those things, then it makes sense. Well, then the only way to participate in anything is to be hyper masculine, which right. doesn't make anyone happy. Right? right. Which is why there's, which is why I think that like, you know, even, you know, we're talking about, Oh, well, you know, we're in the patriarchy, but it seems to me that the, the solution that I keep getting seen pushed is for women to behave more like men. You're like, right. well, wait, right. That is that going to make them happy. Right. right. Is it seems that like article that, goes, goes into that. So, Oh, does it? Okay. I mean, um, that makes sense to me. Cause you're like, well, wait, you're telling me that we're like masculinity has run amok and we've made everything masculine. And now you're saying, and the solution to that is for women to be masculine. Yeah. And yeah. Old, it's very, nah. it's, it reminds me of like your, you know, your old boy Driscoll, just like, you're not a man. <laughs> boy. I was, I was at that. I was at yeah. that sermon. That was yeah. uh that was an awkward room, man. <laughs> and there's part of me, like, this is, you know, cards on the table. There's part of me that loves Driscoll for that. Like, Driscoll was a lot of things. He's not a coward. No, no. And here's the thing. There is a certain type of guy that yeah. actually I don't think that he's wrong about. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. like, I, I think there's a certain type of guy that actually doesn't need to be coddled anymore. Um, and like this, this kind of like this Peter Pan syndrome, eternal yeah. boyhood and that kind of stuff is like not useful to anyone. And so yeah. there's a certain part of me where like, yeah, that guy probably need to hear it. I was like, there's a lot of guys in here that aren't in that situation. And I don't know how helpful this is for women. Um, uh, but okay. <laughs> well, they need to man up. I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah, man. Oh God. That's for that you, was... Shelly. Shout out to Shelly. Yeah. I like to say, I like to say, just completely joking, bordering on sexist things. If you didn't know me, take that out in a clip. If I was famous, people would take like Joe Rogan. People would take that out in a clip, and and out. Yeah. Oh yeah. One of my, I don't know. One of my friends was on, uh, or not my friend, but I, I met him a couple of times. But his, uh, he went on Rogan. Um, Colin Moriarty. I don't know if that name rings a bell. I remember the name. Yeah. yeah so he he started this. It was like this kind of video game and pop culture, kind of one of those nerd YouTube video channels. I think it was, it was called Kind of Funny. So he's one of the co-founders of it. He was, he was, he, I knew him because I was working in Xbox for a while. And so he was doing um, game reviews um, mm-hmm. for IGN. So anyway, so I met him at a couple of events, but he, um, uh, there was this, like a few years ago, there was this um, day without a woman, like kind of trending thing on Twitter where people were supposed to like talk about what it like, what would a day without a woman be like? And you're supposed to say all bad things, right? You're supposed to be like, oh, we, you know, we couldn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would. Yeah. And so he made a joke and he said, ah, peace and quiet. 
hashtag a day without a woman. And it just like that went viral. Oh my goodness. He like his, his co-founders kicked him out of his, uh, his own company. And anyway, he ended up going, he ended up going on Rogan. Um, and cause Rogan was talking to him about it. It was like, what happened there? And he's like, yeah, it's, he's like, Colton was like, it, it wasn't, it's not even really a funny joke. It's kind of no. like a cliche. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, it's every married with children episode ever. And he's like, yeah. I don't know. It, it wasn't funny, but I also don't think it was like super offensive that warranted the reaction. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. That sounds about what Twitter's good for is, you know, not being funny and also overreacting to everything. Oh, that's hilarious. And it's so fun. Like my own marriage is so different than that because my joke is, is that like relationally and verbally, I self-identify as a woman. So like, <laughs> I'm very interested in ideas, but like, I'm the emotional one. I'm the one who talks all the time. And so it's, it's like, <laughs> so things like that are funny because like the peace and quiet, I'm sure my wife would just be like, amen. Like if we got rid of that self-identifying woman. Yeah, there. I mean, so in the relationship, she's the withdrawer and you're the pursuer. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I we I always thought that my wife and I were the opposite, where I was the withdrawal and withdrawer and she's the pursuer. And then it turns out, no, it's the exact opposite. It's just that I, whenever we're having problems, I'll pursue. But if she keeps withdrawing, then I start to be like, okay, I'm not pursuing anymore. Like. I, because it hurts, yeah. right? Yeah. Because I don't want to, like, it hurts to be like, no, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not ready. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And so and then I stopped doing it. And so that's why we always thought that. And then I'm also super stubborn. So I'll just wait for her to come to me at that point. And so then yeah. it, it may seem like I was the withdrawal, but actually like early on, whenever we're not seeing eye to eye, I do pursue and she withdraws. Yeah. And, um, and then, but then I just get stubborn and I become an asshole and then right. I just, nope, I'm just going <laughs> to sit back. No, nope, you're going to have to come to me now. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh man. I, yeah. So that's a, it's funny cause I love talking about relationships. Like that's one thing. I love the discord and it's, and it's interesting cause we can talk about ideas and things, but I'm way more, especially now when I've kind of done a little shift, I'm still obviously very interested in talking about ideas, but, um, but like just talking about like, if I, if when, when, when we do come out and visit you in Seattle sometime, yeah. um, like those are my favorite. I love like going out to dinner with couples and just talking about relationships. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a level of intimacy that a lot of people aren't, comfortable with but like I love that stuff because like I'm into yeah. I'm into psychology I'm into like temperament stuff I'm into relationships I'm into relational like I could do that all day yeah no I like doing it too I yeah you're right I think it makes people uncomfortable because they don't like to be very exposed you know yeah. in a lot of ways and but again like as a Christian and I think I was I wonder if this is one another reason that orthodoxy is a little bit more comfortable for you, especially for like Protestants, like, cause you don't have confession, right? You don't really talk mm -hmm. about things and, you know, it's kind of like pretend everything's okay. Um, but I think, but as a Christian, I'm like, well, but if you're not willing to talk about it, you're not willing to expose it to the light, right? It still has power over you. Yeah. Right. In that sense, like you're, you're still slave to your own sin because right. you're not willing to admit to what extent it has a grip on you. It's controlling so like, you. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I, it's, it's freeing in a way to just say, nope, I'm, I, I don't know if you've ever read, you might like it, uh, the book, um, The Freedom of um, Self-Forgetfulness. Um, no. 
It's by Tim Keller. It's only like a 25 page, almost like kind of a pamphlet, but you might like it. But yeah, he goes into that. But like, you know, you need to stop thinking about yourself so much. Like as if like something I need for sure. Yeah. So, well, it basically is just like, it's freeing to think that, listen, you're, you know, yeah, you're selfish and you're all these things and all that kind of stuff. But like your sin is not like the core story of the world either. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's, that's not what's going on. And so like, almost like that forgetting yourself and that, that what allows you to give both grace and truth simultaneously when it's not about you, right? It's not about you at all. It's about yeah. like uh, transformation for the sake of the other person. Um, and so anyway, so it was, it's an interesting book. I think you'd like it, but I do think that that's where like the lack of confession in Protestant practices, while I, I think that there's there's maybe some theological justification for it um, is practically not super helpful because what ends up happening is no one confesses to anyone mm. any sin mm. um, and then it, it it festers and it doesn't like you're, you're you never get into that kind of like practice of like just exposing yourself and your own sin and yeah. like not letting it control you yeah um, and so that's where like even even if I didn't necessarily believe that the priest was actually giving me absolution, mm-hmm. right? Just the practice of going and confessing is yeah. itself a useful thing to do. Which I think is, so a couple things. I had, I actually was part of a lot of small groups that were really great at that. Well, and I also found, I don't know, I learned this from my, like my first, the first small group I was ever part of, my first small group leader was really great at this, of just like opening up with vulnerability and it created an atmosphere where then other people followed. You know, it was a, it was yeah. a mimetic desire a little bit. Mm-hmm. It yep. And, um, and then I always, because I'm, I mean, you can call it a gift or a curse, but like I'm very transparent in things. Like I don't, people would always talk about like the thread of like, what if all your sins were just displayed on the, on like the, whatever it's called. What do they call them now? PowerPoint. Oh, yeah. But, and I would just be like, sweet. Then we could get down to work and everybody would just know yeah. the truth. Like, yeah. that'd be fine. Throw them up there. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And so in small groups, a lot of times I would kind of lead doing that is I just throw stuff out there. I think almost like shock value level things and people would just be. So like I was part of communities that had a really good experience mm-hmm. of that. But then the other thing I think is that it's one of the things that's fascinating to me. I kind of followed the online comic community part that's connected to rogan but just like a bunch of other guys uh people and one of the things dak shepherd his podcast you know they always talk about all the time is just like aa and sobriety groups and confessing and opening up all these things that are just like complete it's actually all rooted in like ignatian theology that's all the same stuff that like the jesuits and father rodriguez was about you know right um and, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing, addiction and individualism and depression and then like opiate addiction, alcohol, drug usage, like all those, this is the grace of the way that God has established the world is that the deeper you go into these things, like where will you go to escape from me? If you go down to the depths of Hades, I'm there. Like you're going to find God yep. somewhere. <laughs> Totally. And that's, that's part of like, you know, you know, Holland's dominion and that kind of stuff. Like it's like God and Jesus has seeped into every aspect of not only our culture, I would argue the world itself, the universe itself, like it's all there. You can't escape it. 
Um, and I right. think that you're fooling you're fooling yourselves to think that. Oh no! Lost you. Can't hear you. Your ear, your ear pods are going dead, huh? Dead, huh? A little bit. Maybe that's just fate, because I go to the bathroom. All right, sorry. Can oh, you no, me? I can hear you now. Okay, cool. Yeah, so then I, I had to switch my air. One of my AirPods was dying, so I switched uh -huh. to the other one, and it got up. Finish out your thought, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I was saying, like, there's no, there's no way, like, to think that we didn't just inherit this and we can escape from god and jesus yeah. and christianity is just like a pure figment of your imagination and to right. back to your original your you know one of the points that you were making earlier is you can only critique christianity within christianity yeah because like we're all sitting in the right in the middle of it playing jesus yeah. story that's what we're doing so all there is is christ and antichrist that's Rene gerard like that's the yeah. point it's like there there aren't other options anymore. right yeah the fullness yeah. of time has descended yeah no, I, okay, um, well, I'll, I'll let you go, it's 10.30, uh, I really enjoyed this, we should do this more often. It was um, a lot of fun, well, we have, I think, we both like ideas, obviously, um, and I think we have really similar backgrounds, we could talk about, I know you were raised in, like, a classical Christian school, yeah. and, like, classical ed, I was deep in, like, the classical Christian ed world for a long okay. time. Okay, oh, cool. So we could talk yeah. about, we could talk about all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we could talk about that, and, and how, like, random calvinist reformed guy got really into aquinas and catholic theology and that kind of stuff yeah like, yeah the personal that. testimony stuff is is fascinating to me yeah yeah no no i'd love to do that um do read uh this uh, I, I do want to talk to you about the freedom of self-forgetfulness yeah and, and have you ever read um the uh the story of brother lawrence no, but I've heard of that, and that's been one of those things that's been referenced to me a few times. Okay, I'll yeah, I'll send you I'll send you the name of it, but that that's also like a really good kind of long suffering and yeah. communing with God through suffering thing that I think that you will like. It's a little bit orthogonal yeah. to what we're talking about today, but I, I read it and I was like, I bet Luke would like this. So oh nice, I'll, I'll, I'll send you that. But yeah, it's uh it's it's really a fantastic and interesting uh, story about just like dealing with the suffering of life and communing with God, even in the bad things, yeah. um, and, and taking joy actually in that, um, which is really hard to do, but that's, that's where it's like a little bit different than, it's a little bit different than kind of like the, the stoic where I want to separate that stuff. Like, it's almost like uh, he's, he's enjoying entering into the pain and mm -hmm. the communion that he gets with God through it. So it's a really yeah. fascinating paper, but. All right. Well, and then, um, the only other thing is like, before if you can edit it you know all this tech stuff i don't know what we said at the beginning i want to double check that oh yeah yeah i'll, I'll, I'll definitely if we um, said, i just can't remember what we said some of the personal things some of the, like detail of the personal stuff i maybe. yeah well, what i can do is i can just like i'll just you know kind of cut into where you asked me if we're recording and so we'll just in that way we'll make sure oh, that everything, everything sure. before that, that sounds good uh, yeah that way we'll make sure everything before okay. that's out all right. All right. All right sounds man. good. Well, this was a good time. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Okay. See you, man. Talk to you later. Bye.